the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Ituria, and Trachonitis and Lysanias as ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the, books, in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the ax is lying at the root of the trees Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then should we do? In reply, he said to them, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what should we do? He said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations, and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But Herod, the ruler, who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all by shutting up John in prison. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you. So, not, not a lot of tricks this morning. It doesn't feel like the type of text that requires a lot of, like, aha. There's really just one question that I want to get out there for you this morning, and then we're going to try to... I just want to kind of craft some reflections around this idea, and the question's this, in, in, in what ways uh, is God talking to you about obedience? And is it possible to hear his voice, not from a heavy-handed or angry place, uh, but from the heart of a God who, who has someone for you to be, and has us someone to be in the world? So that's just the, the one question. Like, is it possible that there's one thing, Dallas Willard often points out, it's, it, it tends to just be one thing, just the next thing, and whether it looks super religious or not, what, what, what is the next thing uh, that God's talking to you about? I was thinking about that this week, and I don't even know why I remember this, but I, it took me back to my senior year of high school. Uh, I was driving my 
at the time I drove a 65 Impala and I was in Laurel where I grew up, there was one stoplight. Some of you may be familiar, there's this underpass and it was always fun in high school because in high school the underpass would fill up with water and you'd just be able to see if you could get through it before your car stalled. But I'd come up out of the underpass, I was headed north towards the high school, coming up on the single stoplight in town, and I had this thought, and I guess I'd started going to some church and kind of hanging out in the back row, but I just, I, I still remember, I don't even know if I was alone, I don't know if it was a conversation or if it was just a thought in my head, but I remember the thought for sure, and it was, I, I, think, I think I'm going to stop cussing. Now, I'm not trying to be judgmental, please don't take it that way, I've since started again, so don't worry if I'm trying to judge it that way. But I just remember that, like, still small voice of God just saying that. And I I don't know how long it took. I I remember I worked on it. It was a point of emphasis for a while. I think it was that following winter uh, in the months after uh, I graduated high school that uh, I remember I was thinking to myself, I think I want to start reading the Bible every day. And someone bought me one of those Bibles that if you read it every day, you read it in a year, which I actually don't recommend because you generally sometime in February get bogged down in the second part of Exodus but it was just another instance of, of a habit, habit that formed that, that has shaped me. Uh, about a year after that, I started volunteering at this church and was helping in the student ministry. And I just remember I became conscious of the fact that I kept showing up at all this church stuff smelling like smoke. And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to judge you if you smoke. That's really not the point. And I remember thinking to myself, I think I'm going to stop smoking. And that, that was a, a couple-year journey. And so again, what, what I want to try to get out in front of you is, is it possible... Uh, because remember, we, we don't, we're not adherents to a philosophy, like the extent to which the faith is true, the, the, the conviction is that, that we follow the living God, uh, who, who is still active and available to communicate, and that often through his spirit, through this still small voice, we'll just nudge. It's often very gracious and kind, which means for many of you, it doesn't sound like the voice that you're accustomed to hearing, that maybe you grew up with. Uh, I realized this week, I've never, I've, I've never been abused in the name of God. And that's not true for all of you. It's never been heavy-handed for me. It's never been shaming. And so the, the, the danger is that you would like, eliminate the fact that God does speak and does ask things of you because there's this voice that you don't want to hear and the tone you don't want to hear it in. But is it possible that God's just nudging you? And if so, what is that? So I'd like to pray, and then we'll jump back into John here. God, Lord, we bring to you all kinds of stuff and worries and concerns and joys and relationships that are going well and ones that aren't and stories of healing and stories of sickness. So God, we just sit before you. We just love uh, for you to be present to us for about the next 20 minutes and guide us in a conversation about ourselves, but also in a conversation that's bigger than ourselves. We love you. Amen. Probably thus far, if you've been with us in Advent, the stories we've looked at are intuitive. Like, you would expect to talk about the characters that are used to seeing in the, in the nativity, in the Christmas pageants, you know, Mary, who we'll talk about next week, and Zechariah and Elizabeth, and even Anna and Simeon that we talked about last week. But why John the Baptist? And what's interesting is, Advent, someone told me last service, they did, did some research, and it goes back to the 8th century, I didn't know that. I did know there's these seven antiphones, which is where that song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, comes from. There's these seven days that the liturgical church used to celebrate these ideas. But the idea of Advent goes a ways back. But what's fascinating, I've got a stack of books at my office I was going to bring with me, and then that felt pretentious. Because what stood out to me when I was researching this uh, almost over a year ago, what I realized was every Advent tradition I could identify, it always involves John the Baptist. 
which again, to me, is counterintuitive. It's like, it's about joy and happiness, and then there's this kind of guy that eats bugs and wears uncomfortable clothing and tends to be yelling. What's the role he plays? But it's also textually honest. If you're familiar with the text, you know we have four Gospels, which are essentially biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's not a lot of stories that all four of them focus on. John's one of them. And then the Gospels do this confusing thing where they often put things in different order, like some Gospels have the clearing of the temple first, and some have it last, and we debate, was there two or was there one of those moments? Not John. Always, you have to move through John to get to Jesus. So if you've been with us, we've been in this series called What Are You Waiting For? We've been trying to explore Advent from kind of a historic values place, and we started by just recognizing that part of what Advent does is it reminds us that to to follow God is to wait, it's just central to what it means uh, to try to follow God. And sometimes we wait in the midst of a season of suffering. And it's not that God designs suffering, but that we wait and trust that God can bring good from anything. Sometimes we wait in the midst of mystery. You might be in that right now, where there's this, like, I thought it would have happened by now, or I thought I'd have this job by now, or whatever that is. Sometimes mystery just compels us to reflect on the fact that we're, we're waiting for God. So that first week, we just kind of explored this, like there's a muscle that the followers of Jesus have had from the very beginning, and it's this muscle of waiting. And then last week, we we took it to that next level because what we explored last week is that we don't just wait personally, like faith can become really self-absorbed and all about us, but there's a bigger layer to it that Advent historically celebrates that we're not just celebrating Jesus' birth, but we're waiting, waiting for his return, We explored this idea last week of the the penultimate kingdom, which I know confused many of you. It just means second to last, and it's a way of emotionally saying whatever empire I'm a part of, whatever government's in place, my my hope's ultimately not in that, but it's in the return of the king. Uh, The way Walt Brueggemann says it is, at Advent, we remind ourselves help is on the way, that the story's going somewhere, and that somewhere isn't just to a Jesus who was born 2,000 years ago, but who's coming back. But then that leads us into John the Baptist, because the return of the king implies God's coming back, which means we've got work to do. Uh, Maybe you could think of it this way. Uh, What would cause you uh, to clean up? Like, what what would cause you, uh, what would be the occasion that would cause you to, like, clean your car? Or what would be the occasion that would cause you to clean the bathroom or clean your room or clean the house? We all have them. It's just oftentimes different for for some of us. What's the occasion that would cause you to get a haircut or buy a new shirt or not just brush your teeth but floss your teeth and use mouthwash? Like what, 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 what's the occasion that would cause you to clean up? That's really what John's doing in this story is it's this reminder that when the king comes back, like he's, he's not our homeboy or pal, like he's boss, he's king. And historically, and again, I get it, some of you maybe come from a really fundamentalist background and it's hard for you to think about obedience without shame and anger. But I think it's important to recognize there, the fault there is with your experience, not with the idea of obedience. Dallas Willard, uh, the way he says it is, uh, what if what you get from this life is who you become? And what if what others get from your life is who you become? And therefore, what if what God gets from your life is who you become? That's the movement. Let's just read again what John, because John's quoting from Isaiah, and there's a lot of historical context here. It says this, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, 
Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. It's a preparing for the king. How many of you have ever lived in a town where the president visited? Ever lived in a place where the president visited? Serious? Wow. I think it was George W. came to Billings once. Where, where were you? South Carolina. It's, it's quite a spectacle. In fact, that got me thinking this week about this whole idea. And then I went to YouTube, which is always dangerous, and went like, I wonder what videos are out there on about like the, the president's motorcade. And so I've got a video for you. But it does, I think, come full circle. There's a point. I know you might not believe me. But part of what the scriptures do with this Isaiah passage is, is in, in essence to say all of that intentionality a person ought to leverage with the anticipation of there's a God to whom you are accountable. Now, in their culture, of course, the way they thought about it was when a king's coming to town, you want the road to be smooth. You want it to be enjoyable. You don't want their head bouncing off the roof of the chariot as they come into town or else they'll be grumpy. I wonder how many of you remember a life before the interstate highways were completed? Anybody? Like when you had to go to Great Falls via the two-lane thing and you puked ten times because of all the switchbacks? I remember, I don't remember that, but I do remember driving to Seattle as a kid before the interstate was done as you come into, must be Coeur d'Alene and Wallace, and you have to get down into town rather than up on all those pillared highways. That's the idea that they're working with, is that you do well to kind of make the path into town enjoyable and smooth. And how do the ancient writers, both of the Jewish text and, and the Christian New Testament, how do they use it? to go, hold on. It's not so much about his being comfortable, it's about the condition with which he finds you in. Listen to the way John says it this way. He says, uh, verse three, he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Question, does John see the problem as like them or me? Remember, we've explored throughout this series that, that part of what Advent involves is a, a world that wasn't politically working. Factions and disruptions and arguments and resistance, they were myriad. There's all kinds of different responses to what do we do when the world's politically as broken as it was. That's the situation they're dealing with. And yet, where does John take the conversation? takes it right back to you and I. Now, if you keep reading, and we're not actually going to revisit it, he's all about justice as well. There's this whole thing about systemic injustice. Yes, but he starts with you and with me, the same place Jesus starts in the Sermon on the Mount. This reminded me this week of Charles Taylor's book, A Secular Age. Some of you, maybe a few weeks ago, bought that book by James K. A. Smith called How, How, How Not to Be Secular. It's, just, it's meant to be a reading companion for Charles Taylor's book. And really what he's exploring in that book is... How did we move from a world 500 years ago where everybody was religious to a world today where nobody's religious? Uh, how do we move from this religious-centered world to the secular world? It's worth reading. It's a fascinating read. It's not easy. If you're reading it, I'd love to go for a walk and hear more about what you're learning. But one of his observations that I thought was gold was he makes this observation that in a religious world, there's a sense of sin. There's a sense of accountability. There's a sense of, like, you can do things wrong and you're held accountable for that. In a therapeutic secular world, he would say absent religion, the sense isn't so much sin and personal responsibility. The sense is, is like sickness and victimhood. 
Now, please hear me on this. I am not suggesting that either polar world is the ideal, and I don't think he is either, nor do I think Jesus is. But I think we can all see that in the same way that there's been times where culture has been so far to the sin side that we neglected the therapeutic and the scientific, that there's also times, and maybe we're in one, where where it's so, so slanted towards sickness and victimhood that we're not taking responsibility. What if John, with Advent, is just simply asking the question, so what's the next right thing God's talking to you about? What's obedience look like? uh, Excuse me. N.T. Wright says it in his commentary. I think it's in his commentary on Matthew where I found this. He says it this way. Christian living is far more than repentance, but it is not less. Listen to the way he says it in in verse 7. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not, excuse me, do, do not... Begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees, and every tree that therefore does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What's going on here? Well, in Jesus' day, there were two types of baptism. Uh, There's what's called ceremonial baptism, uh, which is maybe akin to even what the Catholics do by the dipping their hand in the water and doing the sign of the cross. You would do it before you went into temple, the the, the Essenes did it often at Qumran. It's a, it's a ritual thing. We're pretty sure that's not what John's talking about. His words seem to reference what, what's called proselyte baptism. I've always thought that word was proselyte, and then when I saw it this morning, I was like, it's not proselyte. That's not how you say that at all. Now I've got this complex that I don't know how to say it. That baptism is reserved for Gentiles who have come to a belief in the Jewish God, who've come to a belief in Yahweh, and and what marks their conversion was baptism. What's John saying? To the rulers from Jerusalem, to people who could trace their lineage back generations, literally, to Abraham? What's John saying? It's scandalous when he suggests to people who were Jewish and had been for as long as they've known within their own family lineage that they come to God the same way as everybody else. That you're not just in because of who you are, you're in because of you have this desire to make him Lord, to make him boss, to follow. Which brings me back to this question, what, what's, what's the one thing? It also brings me back to bonsais, and I, I promise I won't bring him back for a long time. But this, weekend, I, this week in my office I realized um, that the good news is I don't sit in my office and look at porn, but I do sit in my office sometimes and stare at my bonsai trees. You're laughing, I know that's crass, but it's also a real risk for everybody in this world. So I actually keep, oh yeah, I forgot I need that stool. This is one that I've kept in my office um, for a long time, and I don't, you don't have to tell me that you like it, but well, just don't tell me. <laughs> what I was doing this week is I was, that, that one's new, I grabbed it a, a few weeks ago when I was in Billings with the hopes of training it into something. This one I've had for over 10 years. I've been training it for about that long. And as I was sitting at my desk this week, not feeling great, kind of just reflecting on all this and trying to get better about praying for y'all, I was doing all of that. And I had this moment of realization of like what a bonsai entails. Now again, if, if you don't find it to be an art form, that's fine, you won't offend me. But you can see within this and the contrast, some of what makes the bonsai art the bonsai art. Part of it is that a bonsai tree is by very nature, it naturally grows up uh, in, in a very adverse condition. 
It's on a cleft of a rock somewhere where the wind is blowing on it and water is low. It's in some kind of condition like this is kind of made to mimic something that grew up underneath a rock or something. And so part of what bonsais do is they feature like the trunk more than anything else. If you're familiar with the Eddie McClure trails, some of you know that where Eddie East meets Eddie West, there's this, there's this rock at the top. And there's this awesome, gnarly, old pine tree, ponderosa pine tree that's kind of growing over that rock. And every time I'm there, I say to whoever I'm with, A, that's the neatest bonsai tree in town, and I'll bet it's like 100 years old. It's not particularly huge, but it's in a place where it can't get particularly huge. So, so that's part of the bonsai art. It's also where then, uh, just to nerd out for a second, you can see the branches are often on different planes. That's, again, about feature and art. Uh, also, the growth. You always want growth moving out from the trunk, not coming in. And so what that involves, because you look at that and go, I can't believe that's 10 years old, and it'll be another five before it can even stand on its own, is lots of cutting. There's growth that happens, and you're like, well, that's nice, but it's in the wrong place, or it's in the wrong direction. Sometimes you're taking wire and literally kind of turning it, as you can see I'm, I'm doing here. And what struck me this week was the contrast. Now, we can disagree. If you find that one more beautiful, that's fine. But what struck me this week is what's the profound difference between the two? And at the risk of overplaying my own bonsai art skill, what I hope we can all agree on is like, what makes them different is the creative, intentional hands of the artist. That that is what this species, which is actually a South African succulent species that is the main plant of elephants, it's called mini jade, but not related to the jade as many of us know it, that's what jade does left to itself. This is what happens when, when someone comes in and trains it in a certain direction. As Eugene Peterson calls it, a long obedience in a single direction. Here's the question I'm trying to frame for you. What's the little bit of growth that God's going, yeah, that needs to go? Or yeah, that's headed this way. We're, we're, gonna, we're gonna turn this this way. It could be the dynamics of a marriage. It could be something as simple as God asking you to stop spending money in this way every day. Again, they're not always overtly moral or immoral or spiritually or unspiritual. What's the next right thing God's talking to you about? And what does it look like? The reality is this bonsai tree at its best, I'll be gone. I won't even be able to enjoy it. Like what, what's the long game God is trying to play with your life? What's the direction he's trying to form and shape you? And in the same way as a bonsai tree, sometimes, and this may be you, it may involve trusting that there was something incredibly harmful, something tragic, something not of God's design and it sent everything off in a sideways direction. But again, the God of John the Baptist is the one that goes, okay, we're gonna graft this in and make it part of the beauty of your story. I had this mom come up to me after first service. This doesn't happen very often. It was a beautiful moment. This young mom with two little tiny girls and is pregnant, I know, because I, I know her husband. She came up and she's just weeping after the first service. And she said, it was a long night, I didn't sleep well, I'm exhausted. And then she even said, in, way only, in ways only pregnant women can appreciate. And she said, the girls were up all night and I didn't sleep well, my husband let me sleep in. And they, they have to go to different services if they're going to go in this season of life. And she said, I, I woke up, and I think she said it was 8.40. And she said, I just, I heard this voice say, get up, put on clothes, go to church. And she said, I didn't want to, I was hungry, 
I was tired. I just wanted to get sleep. I was telling myself, I'm going to get a headache, and then I'm going to have to nap again today, and I'm going to get sick. And she said, it just persisted. Get up and go to church. So then she said, well, okay, so I grabbed my phone because I thought, I got to get Starbucks because I am starving. I can't just get to show up at church. And so she thought, I'll, I'll grab the app. I've got the app on my phone. I'll order. I'll drive by and grab a sandwich and something to drink as I drive by, and the app wouldn't load. She said, I tried it again, and the app wouldn't load. She said, at that point, I was furious, like, come on, God, I'm trying to go to church, and I can't get this stupid app to, to work. So finally, she drug herself out of bed. She said, it takes me seven minutes to get from my house to church. And I rerouted my way a little bit to drive by Starbucks, because she said, if there's nobody in the drive-thru, I thought, I'm going to stop and get something. And I drove by, and as I was getting close, she said, I could see there was one car, so I had time, and I looked at my clock, and it was 9.02, and God said, get to church. And she looked at me just emotional. And she said, Adam, I think what we often miss is it's not always comfortable. Like the Holy Spirit will often ask us to do things and it's just not comfortable for us. And yet that's what it is. It's responding to the voice of the Holy Spirit in our life. So as the band comes up here, we're going to try to give you space to be present to God in your own way. And again, I I get that we can create all kinds of spiritual treadmills around this question. This might be as something as otherwise benign as going to the gym tomorrow, but what's what's the next way? Because remember, part of the goal here is to arrive on Christmas knowing that you've done the work to be ready to celebrate in ways that maybe you haven't ever before. Now, Lord, we just sit in this little tiny moment and reflect on the fact that You've always been a God with a people. Not only that that's been your way to be present to the world, but that's been the way that you've worked uh, with us as individuals. And so, Lord, I just pray for every, every home, every neighborhood, every office place, every relationship, God, that it's an astounding thought to think that uh, the way you show up at that office, the way you show up in that neighborhood, us, and yet we trust that. So God, would you help us find a healthy balance between uh, a desire to grow and just allow you to be the boss of our lives more and more, while at the same time protect us from the kind of judgmental legalism that that can get us entrenched in. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us online at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook or Instagram.